9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK here in Washington, D.C., um, uh, well, actually in Alexandria, Virginia, not too far away in Alexandria, Virginia, but just too important to come in here to the studio. We have Rosa Brooks in her, um, palatial Alexandria, Virginia estate. Um, hi David. You guys hi. didn't invite me. Oh, well, that's an oversight on our part. It would have been a lot more fun to have you here. Not too far away crouching in an agricultural hearing room in the Senate office <laughs> building. Oh, uh, well, we won't broadcast till after you're far, far, far. far oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah is, is Evelyn uh, <laughs> Farkas um, and uh, our regular friend of ours and um, a new guest today, uh, but also a friend, Brian Katulis of the Center for American Progress, where he is a senior fellow. Welcome, Brian. Great to be with you all. And and I thought we would start out uh, as a as a sort of a trigger for our conversation. The Center for American Progress has just released today, I think, a study of American attitudes towards foreign policy, um, which will come as a big shock to most uh, smart political insiders I know, because they don't think Americans have any attitudes towards foreign policy. <laughs> um, so, you know, where 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 do you come out on that, Brian? Um, the American public actually gets the broad strokes pretty sharply, um, and they understand what's going on in the world. I think if there's one big thing that they see is that America's in this competition with countries like China um, and, and, and other countries, but, but, but we don't have a plan. And that's what's pretty sensible. It seems to make sense to me that uh, for years this has been a problem where what we've got here is this failure to communicate from our leaders. It didn't start with Trump, um, but that Americans don't have a clear sense of what the people in government are actually doing, but they have a pretty decent sense that we should be doing more to invest here at home uh, and connect it to what we're doing in the world. There's there's really not that strong sense of isolationism, what, what, what we found in our research. Um, that there are new camps that have emerged. You know, it, it ain't about neocons or liberal interventionists. Uh, we talked about maybe 15, 20 years ago. There's a definite hardcore camp of Trump America first nationalists. Uh, our metrics find about a third of the voting public is there. Um, but the, the rest are divided between this camp of about half that are internationalist and then another 20 percent or so that are just disengaged. So one of the biggest conclusions is that you know people generally uh, are in touch with sort of where America should be going in the world. They want to hear more from their leaders, but unfortunately, they're not getting much of a clear argument uh, either from Trump or from a lot of uh, critics from Trump. So basically, it's 50-50 between uh, informed internationalists and clueless people. Uh, pretty much. I mean, look, this is the sort of thing that none of these things are static. This is not like we're Moses coming off a mountain here with 
sort of all of the found wisdom about where the American public is at. This is an ongoing sort of research we're going to be doing through. David, David is exactly like Moses coming off the mountain, though, Brian. Yeah, that's, thank you. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard that. Um, yeah. Um, but but we really want people to sort of take a look at this report and the findings and then sort of react to it because it's it's not static. And what's most interesting for me was was the qualitative when you, we went out and interviewed with this research firm. We did focus groups and extended interviews with a, with a lot of folks and outside of our foreign policy bubbles. And they sort of get sort of the basics that we've overreached for years, that we're in wars that seem to have no end in sight. But it's not like they want to just bring it all home and forget about the world. This, this Trump sort of uh, gated community approach, treat, treating America like it's Mar-a-Lago, uh, building high walls and letting only certain people in, and then not really caring what's happening at the other side of the wall. It, yes, it gets you know a certain slice of his base, and I don't think those people are moving. But w- what's up for grabs are the rest of the two thirds of America, uh, and and that's what's I think interesting is that people really look to 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 people who are either running for office or in Congress for some direction on this, and by and large they haven't been getting a clear sense of that direction. Does any of this surprise you, Rosa? Not really. And and I think one of the things that uh, the report that Center for American Progress has just done, one of the things that it really highlights is, is something that we talk about a lot, but it is beginning to look like Americans maybe intuitively understand themselves, which is that you can't draw a sharp distinction between foreign and domestic anymore, uh, that the idea that we can be strong abroad and keep America safe while ignoring poverty, while ignoring public education, while ignoring infrastructure issues at home is, is, is delusional. And, and, and I think that's something that it's, it's, it's really helpful, actually, to have a report that reminds uh, candidates that those things matter to people, but they also matter to foreign policy. Um, you know, and, and I think for for us to be to keep sort of making sure that 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 interconnectedness doesn't get lost, because it's it, it you know it is very easy to spin this as you know it's all it's all about domestic stuff, and but to keep sort of hammering home these are not separate issues. You know, if you care about if you care about one, you have to care about the other. Well, no, that's a that's a good point, e- Evelyn. When you sort of hear this, what is your first reaction? I, I actually felt encouraged. I mean, I felt like, okay, this is good. I mean, it's demonstrating that Americans do care about how, first of all, how how powerful we are, how much influence we have in the world, how we're perceived in the world, and of course, some of them are uh, more you know, robust and aggressive in terms of how, what kind of foreign policy they would have. But I still think um, on balance, it's a, pol- it's a, it's a positive thing that, that, that it appears, according to this, that most Americans uh, do care about foreign policy. So um, as a foreign policy wonk um, and someone who, who thinks it's really important, it's an important component of who we are and of our sustained power and influence that we do exercise our ability to ha- to make a mark in the world that we do that we do make a mark in the world um, and we have to do that smartly so that means our citizens have to be educated and interested and educated and so it it, it it 
seems to me that there's an opening here. Obviously, now we need to educate the citizens and we need to make sure that we have the right leadership in place at the highest levels. But um, but it does it does demonstrate that people still care what the world thinks about us, um, which means that there is a desire to be responsible, if you will. Now, Brian, you know, you guys have been so masterful in your media rollout of this, of course, that you've gotten onto Deep State Radio, which is highly coveted <laughs> airtime. But I, but I also saw that E.J. Dion wrote a column about it. And one of the things he talked about was that there are a lot of, you know, sort of smart Pauls who are saying, don't bother to talk about foreign policy in the run up to 2020 because uh, Americans don't really care about it. Um, but there was another point that he made, which is that the study seems to indicate that Donald Trump is weak in this regard and is vulnerable uh, as a consequence of, of the way he's conducted foreign policy, um, to use the term loosely. So, so do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, both in the in the poll and then in the qualitative among Trump supporters, there was there's a lot of skepticism about how he's going about doing this. They don't th- think he has a, an actual plan that he's <laughs> surprise surprise seems to be flying by the seat of wait. His pants. You mean there's not a Trump doctrine? <laughs> I keep reading yeah. about a Trump doctrine. Yeah, yeah, they're just making it up. And what's interesting, and this is what I think is the interesting political opportunity. Um, is that a, a vast majority of Americans disapprove of Trump's foreign policy. He he has stronger marks on the economy, which everybody's noted, um, but but they're deeply concerned about the fact, you know, six in 10 think that America is losing respect in the world under Trump, and, 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 and that matters uh, to, to a lot of people. Um, so this, to me, points to an opportunity where I, I used to, part of the reason I wanted to do this is I used to, 20 years ago, work with Stan Greenberg and some friends of ours who are involved in this study set up their own firm. And we decided to go together and get out of the think tank bubble here in D.C. and New York and try to listen to folks. And and it was really interesting to step out and just hear uh People uh, essentially looking for an alternative and pushing back against, I think, the traditional what I call national security deficit disorder among some Democrats, where the pollsters and the consulting class often tell candidates that Republicans are perceived as stronger on foreign policy, so you should just pivot to domestic issues. And what, what we find in our research is that a lot of Americans see the connection between their day-to-day lives, their jobs. The fact that uh, we're in a competition with China, uh, what's going on in, in North America, and, and but, but what they're not hearing is somebody from um, the leadership class is sort of arguing for an internationalism that's out there, like Evelyn was saying, and I think Rosa too. Some of these results are quite encouraging if if a candidate's willing to take it and take it in the right way. And uh, the right way for me in 2019 would be to draw a tighter connection between those domestic infrastructure investment issues or the social safety net and argue, uh, make the argument that, that this actually makes us more competitive in the world to make these investments. And it's quite a contrast to where, where Trump is at, that there is a case to be made. I think the last thing people should do is just do a set foreign policy speech with the traditional buckets. Uh, allies and multilateralism, nonproliferation, all of these things. I, I think a, a, a smart leader would look to draw the connections between the domestic and international and do it in a way that contrasts with, with Trump's angry sort of nationalism, uh, which, which I think is inward looking and, and doesn't, doesn't really recognize the changes in the world. Well, that sounds very smart. Are you considering entering the race yourself? 
No way. Uh, they'd have to call in a fire marshal, uh, given all the numbers that are in there. I, my, my hope is, again, I've been a scholar here at the center uh, for more than a decade and doing lots of policy studies. Um, and, you know, and, and what I've increasingly seen is that, especially with this administration, but then more so even in our political and media culture, people don't really care about what your solution to Syria or Yemen is these days, um, in part because everything's sort of uh, discombobulated in, in the politics of national security. And really, this study doesn't try to lean one way or another, honestly. We just wanted to take sort of the temperature of where... Uh, 2,000 voters were and, and a bunch of others. And, and what, what we find is, like, I think fertile ground, if people want to seize it, to make um, more forceful arguments about internationalism and, and what our purpose is in the world. Rosa, you know, I, I have a theory, which I'm, I don't know if I've ever shared with you in the course of doing this uh, podcast for the past couple of years. But my theory is that the most important um, formative political event uh, in in the United States was the founding of ESPN like 20 years ago. Because in, in my view, ESPN then became the model for most cable news. And most cable news really became about um, looking at like politics like a sport. There was a winner, there was a loser, somebody was ahead, somebody was behind, let's look at the conflict, let's look at the replay, let's have some color commentary, and 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 basically most, you know, cable networks tend to cover stuff the way ESPN covered stuff. And I think one of the things that I'm sort of teasing out of Brian's study here is that most Americans look at Trump and look at our performance in foreign policy, and they think we're losing. And maybe the message ought to be in that context, I'm just interested in what your reaction would be, you know, that, you know, we're losing under Trump and we're going to start winning again and that we don't have to get down into the weeds of the specifics, but that people want the United States to be seen as a leader, to be seen as strong. That's what they're used to. And that's what's most troubling about Trump's foreign policy is that that's not there anymore. I don't know. I, I have sort of mixed feelings because um, I think part of what the American people don't like and are actually quite skilled at detecting is is complete bullshit. Um, and, you know, there as 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 Brian says, there's a group of Americans who will never be reached because they don't care. You know, either they don't care or they're just such hardcore Trump supporters will never reach them. But the remaining Americans, and luckily it's the majority of Americans, um, are reachable but are sophisticated enough to know that the kind of simplistic winning losing narrative is 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 misleading. And I, I think one of the one of the reasons we we have Trump yeah, I mean, there, there's a little bit of a paradox here. I'm trying to figure out how to express this. So on the one hand, the one, one of the reasons that we have Trump is that Americans have, to a very significant extent, stopped trusting elites and stopped trusting elite promises and stopped trusting simplistic elite slogans about winning and losing. Um, so I think that saying Trump losing, you know, Dems winning or something like that potentially backfires uh, because people will rightly dismiss it as, you know, bullshit. 
partly because they, like we, know that it, what, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be winning, right? Um, that may mean something in sports, but it doesn't really, we don't quite know what it, it would mean in the context of foreign policy. Um, that, that being said, and here's why I say there's a bit of a paradox, um, I, I also think that the those those candidates and those political advisors and and some of my friends are in this group who say, oh, candidates, Democratic candidates shouldn't even bother to talk about foreign policy because most Americans really don't care. They should just stick to focusing on, uh, uh, you know, purely domestic issues, not try to link them to foreign policy, et cetera. Um, I think what they miss, you know, is that despite evidence that there are plenty of Americans who don't care, that, and despite the distrust I just mentioned of of elites and false and simplistic promises, um, that American public opinion isn't just this static thing that is what it is. It, it's shaped and influenced by what leaders say. Let's use the term leaders now rather than elites. You know, that when there are credible leaders, credible candidates who speak in credible ways about foreign policy and why it's important – you know, I don't think the fact that many Americans may start from a position of that's not what matters most to me should be the end of the story, because I think that, you know, good leaders have both a the ability and the responsibility to to say to people, hey, I know that this is what you think is important, but let me let me make a pitch for you for why these other things are important. And and when they do that in credible ways, that can move people along and it can change public opinion. So I think that's the sort of difficult tightrope that that Democratic candidates have to walk, um, both the awareness that there are many, many Americans who are really distrustful of elite promises, especially when they sound like cheerleading and like sports commentators rather than uh, people who are are able to talk, albeit in in common sense ways, about a reality that's pretty complicated and messy. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, we've got that total skepticism. On the other hand, if if candidates don't talk about these things and don't make that effort, uh, then public opinion won't change. It'll stay exactly where it is or drift worse because somebody else will be talking to people. And and, and I don't think that's an easy tightrope to walk, but I think it is one that has to be walked. Do you have the same or different view, Evelyn? Well, I, I would agree. I, I would say is I wanted to talk about the media part as somebody who regularly gets on the media and gets, I guess, roped into some of the, the way that they handle foreign policy. I think that we need to do more. We need to have more coverage of foreign policy issues. And we need to show examples of when foreign policy works, because one of the things that's also been eroding Americans' uh, confidence in government on the domestic front and internationally is the fact that the media is often covering just negative stories. And so there, they, I would argue that, you know, if I were an executive, I would consider ways to include some success stories and good stories and to remind Americans, you know, what, what your government does for you overseas, um, because that gets lost in the mix. And then people just tend to, again, it's a downward spiral of decreasing confidence in government, which, again, is, I think, dangerous for our democracy. So I would argue that 
it's it's not just leaders that need to educate American people and draw attention to foreign policy issues, but the media also needs to be doing that because, and of course, the leaders can help guide the media somewhere, but sometimes the media ignores perfectly good stories, um, you know, just because they'd rather cover some sort of inane um, personality conflict. <laughs> Yeah, I think that if I could add, uh, David, I jump in on there. Uh, one of the findings we have from our, our our poll is that the the leading primary source of information for voters on foreign policy is television news, and in that category, local television news was was seen as by most voters as as the thing that shaped their views all the much. And if I grew up in Central Pennsylvania, and I I don't remember being seeing a lot of like international news. And if I recall, it's like 30 seconds or a minute of what the president is doing, which is interesting when you think about how conservative media and right-wing groups have really had this play where whatever you think of their views on immigration and on security, wherever you stand on that, they're actually very aggressive and quite smart at getting their talking points out there. Um, and case in point, another finding in our survey is, is the, the Fox, what we call the Fox News effect, that there's a very strong relationship between Fox News viewership and foreign policy attitudes, uh, and, and particularly on the issue of immigration. And again, you know, the big picture, again, is only a third of the country is, is with uh, Trump and is probably going to stick with him. But his narrative pierces. He's got a storyline that says foreigners are taking advantage of this country, and I'm going to keep bad ones out, and I'm going to make other foreigners pay uh, more you know, in, in, in military uh, and, and in terms of trade agreements. Um, and, and it's hard, really, in, in the qualitative to find a competing narrative coming from um, internationalists, whether they're Republican or, or Democrat, at this point. Um, but the, the, the point I'm trying to make on media, and just to accentuate a point Evelyn was making there, is that, you know, while we'll talk on NPR and get quoted in the Washington Post and things like this, a lot of what has gone on for years has been an investment by people who are very nationalist and from the right in communication mechanisms that touch uh, and impact people in simple frames. And then the important thing is that they're actually coordinated. Uh, I don't see that similarly happening sort of from the, I don't want to even call it, it's not even center left, but from those who want to stay engaged globally uh, in the world, even though the majority of the American public is with us. Um, Rosa, um, you gave such a thoughtful deconstruction of my premise the last time that I want to give you a chance to do the same thing um, with Brian's here in in the sense that, you know, to say that Fox News has has led to sort of isolationism or fear of the foreigner in the U.S. is is to ignore the past 240 years of American history when we've been predominantly isolationist, with the exception of very few points. Um, and have regularly shown antipathy towards immigrant groups, whether it's Irish need not apply um, or even, even uh, well, om almost every group that's ultimately come to America. So, you know, in some respects, the 30 the percent in this, this survey who seem influenced by Fox are, are holding on to sort of traditional American views that have been around a long time, no? Well, I think we've always seen both of those strands in in American the American psyche uh, and and the pendulum, as you say, throughout American history. It, it hasn't been all one or the other. It's 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 often swung between them, uh, and and both of those strands, the isolationist and the internationalist, are are real and enduring. 
um, you know, they're not neither is likely to go away completely anytime soon. Um, I, I'm not going to uh, deconstruct what Brian said because I I largely agree with him. Um, I you know, I and I also think this is something Brian and I were both recently at an event where where this was the main topic of, of conversation. Uh, the, the the same set of themes that you know, and one of the things that we were also talking about was the ways in which uh, Trump has been, I think, far more effective at speaking in terms that 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 tell a clear story and and make sense. You may disagree, but it but it's a coherent narrative, and I think it's been very very difficult for Democrats in general. Uh, to to find a narrative that is as coherent or as resonant as as Trump's, uh, partly because we have a much tougher time um, uh, not sounding like wonks or or students in a you know poli sci graduate seminar. Um, Trump is untroubled by <laughs> Trump is nicely untroubled by nuance, and that can be an advantage when you're when you're trying to communicate in a media landscape that is not very tolerant of long sentences or or subtleties. Um, and and that's part of you know that's another aspect of the the, the tightrope I think that uh, Democratic candidates are going to need to walk that we don't want to. We don't want to throw away nuance. The world is a complicated place, but we also don't want to start talking in in a, such a convoluted way where everything is always so qualified that nobody can actually figure out what we're saying. Um, and the challenge of finding, you know, pithy, punchy ways to express ideas that are nuanced is 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 a is a big one. I don't think it's insurmountable. Um, but I think that that it's one that has to be faced much more squarely than typically we do face it. Okay. Well, and I think it's even more complicated than that because uh, Brian talks about the 50 percent who are internationalist. Uh, and the, the reality is that that 50 percent has to come partially from Dems and partially from Republicans because there's a significant portion of the Democratic Party on a whole host of issues that's not terribly internationalist, not on trade, uh, uh, not on other kinds of issues. Uh, same with the Republican Party. In fact, the anti-internationalist component of U.S. foreign policy opinion has traditionally been on the far left and the far right um, and the more internationalist at the center. In any event, I encourage everybody to take a look at the Center for American Progress study because it is um uh, one of the few um, really sort of in-depth looks at public opinion on these issues uh, right now, and it is extremely informative. One of the things that I wanted to get to before we got to the end of our, our, our episode here, we've got about 15 minutes left, uh, is some news. You know, many of the conversations I've had in, in my life with Brian have had to do with the Middle East. Uh, and And as it happens, you know, and as happens fairly regularly in our history, I'm afraid, we now have a carrier strike force somewhere, uh, you know, heading towards uh, Iran because of uh, information or towards the Persian Gulf because of information about an Iranian threat. Uh, and it all unfolded in rather mysterious fashion with a White House announcement followed by uh, today a statement by uh, the acting defense secretary, because, of course, we don't have a defense secretary at the moment. Um, uh, saying that he 
made the order a day ago, which was after the White House announcement, but who's counting? Um, and then there was another story that the information about uh, the the threat that the U.S. faced came from the Israelis and was pertaining to American forces in Iraq, um, uh, which caused one thoughtful commentator to point out that there's 5,200 American forces in Iraq. Why would they uh, not have our, their own good intelligence on these things? Um, but it, it, it seems a precarious situation that plays into some themes that uh, some people, including particularly John Bolton, have been uh, promoting. Uh, and I just thought I'd like to hear the takes of everybody here on it because they're all informed in this area, starting with you, Brian. Look, everybody should be very afraid and worried about what's going on here. Um, with John Bolton as our national security advisor and Donald Trump uh, in the Oval Office, um, what, what you have here is an administration that essentially made uh, maximum pressure on Iran the centerpiece of its Middle East strategy, if you could call it a strategy. Um, but in the process of doing this, they've actually unilaterally disarmed uh, America um, in, in this sort of struggle with Iran, the competition with Iran, by stepping out of the Iran nuclear deal. And then it didn't really do anything on the ground in key places like uh, Iraq, Yemen, and especially Syria to counter Iran's Influence, and I know this may sound odd coming from a guy on the center left, but I, but I actually do think that the U.S. has uh, an interest in stability in the Middle East, and it's good that we took out ISIS over the last couple of years. I'm glad we we, we got to do that. But Iran actually plays a negative role in, in many ways, and pl especially in places like Syria. And and what I think we've had in place uh, under Trump, and it predated Trump quite a lot, was a was a passive appeasement of countries like Iran, where we have bluster and talk from the Trump administration, or we had an attempt by the Obama administration to reach out and get other countries in the Middle East to share the region with Iran. And none of it actually uh, constituted an actual plan. So we are right now in this sort of in the midst a year into uh, Trump pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, uh, tightening the pressure economically uh, on Iran. And this escalation that has basically shifted from the U.S. from a posture uh, that we had under Obama, which was trying to stay above the fray and not escalate tensions. And now we're very decidedly sort of uh, pushing down uh, against Iran. And yes, you know, they have a lot of malign activities, but the way that they're going about doing it is actually leaving us more exposed with less allies internationally, with a lot of questions when I go to the Middle East pretty regularly. Even some of our closest partners who have embraced Trump uh, publicly, behind the scenes, they say, well, he doesn't have a plan. We, he actually doesn't know what he's doing here. So that's what worries me is that we're on a slippery slope to war, potentially. It looks nothing like the 2003 Iraq war, where there was a concerted effort to, to, to actually make a plan, and then we, we screwed that up under the Bush administration. Here, we, we just have a lot of rhetoric and some economic tools and now some military moves. Um, but it's a, it's a recipe for, for a real disaster that gets us in a slippery slope um, and, and, and maybe in the middle of, of many different fights in places like Iraq and Syria. And, and if I could jump on this, David? Go ahead. 
Um, I, I am really concerned also because I think if we really wanted to address, in, in addition to everything Brian just said, if we really want to deal with the threat from Iran, we should be doubling down on trying to solve the Syrian civil war because that's what's causing instability and the increased threat to Israel, et cetera. And then the other point that I want to make is that you know, this is the wrong non-proliferation crisis to be focused on. The one that we should be focused on is the one with North Korea, because again, as far as we know, including according to our intel agencies, the Iranians are still in compliance with the with the JCPOA, with the Obama era agreement. So, um, we should be focused on the North Koreans, who clearly have broken out and need to be put back in the box, if you will. Well, it sounds to me, Rosa, a little bit like um, Bolton and company are trying to change the narrative. I mean, for most of the past few years, we've been focused on Iran's nuclear capacity. Um, and this particular provocation uh, has to do with threat to U.S. troops um, and may, in fact, trigger kind of proxy conflict between the Iranian-sponsored Hamas and and the Israelis who seem to be egging us on here and the U.S. moving troops around here. But but that to me is a little worrisome in the vein that Brian was talking about because it suggests they're looking for an excuse to ra- ratchet up tensions. Yeah, I think that here, as in so many other situations, uh, you know, Bolton is itching to find an excuse to ratchet up tensions and and maybe even move to overt military confrontation. But I also think that the evidence continues to be quite strong that Donald Trump himself, while he really enjoys ratcheting up tensions because it's fun and lets him make crazy tweets and so forth, um, he has no particular interest in actual conflict. So in that sense, I'm I'm less I after so many, um, you know, false alarms and cries of wolf, some of them coming from me, <laughs> um, I have I have begun to um, feel somewhat calmer uh, about the fact that usually when we we start flexing our muscles and and roaring uh that nothing much will actually happen um now i don't i don't mean to be overly uh sanguine about it because uh, you know there's always a possibility that even if donald trump in his tiny shriveled little heart of hearts uh is thinking to himself yeah you know i just like to make noise i'm not actually going to do anything uh, that matters uh, end up not being within our direct control because the Iranians don't know that, et cetera. Um, you know, so things can escalate despite the whatever the intentions of, of Trump are. But that being said, I, I, I do tend to think that at least when it comes to Trump himself, there's no actual intention and in fact to 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 let this escalate and in fact every intention to avoid escalation. Um, that being said, you know, yeah, it's still a it's still a dangerous game. And could somebody please explain to me why Netanyahu is not in jail yet? <laughs> well, while we're at it, you might ask the same question about Trump. Well, yeah. I do, I do <laughs> trust me. Um, but he's probably, you know, but, but we say, well, you know, Trump probably doesn't want to escalate, but there is uh, this new deployment, uh, both naval and bomber deployment. Um, But, you know, something else happened last week we might take a moment or two to comment on, 
which was that the um, Senate failed to override the president's veto of the bipartisan legislation that actually passed through um, our, our our House and our, our Senate, um, calling for the U.S. not to continue to support as it has before um, this horrible conflict in Yemen, uh, which according to one recent estimate by the end of this year may result in the death of as many as 145,000 or 150,000 children. Um, uh, it's been a humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, and now Donald Trump kind of owns that, doesn't he, Brian? I mean, yeah, it's it's also a strategic uh, calamity as well for the region. I mean, in, in essence, uh, Yemen is just the latest country that has been torn apart by conflicts that started internally, and then regional actors jumped on it. Uh, we, we we saw it in Libya, and it's still ongoing in Libya, as you saw. Um, and after President Sisi of Egypt was here last month, he, he totally flipped Trump um, in his camp. We saw it in Syria, where regional actors get involved in the very disintegration of of these countries. And Yemen is is a strategic disaster as well. And it's a consequence of the Trump administration's approach, essentially giving a blank check to Saudi Arabia, to the Emirates, to, to a number of countries, and not essentially using the leverage which I've argued for years, we've got leverage with these countries. They're, they're very much dependent on us. And it's interesting that Trump uses that, going back to the earlier part of our conversation, rhetorically. If you saw him in his rally uh, in the Midwest about a week or so ago, uh, talking about the Saudi king and how they're dependent on us, he talks that good game with the American public. But, you know, the, the, the golf leaders uh, basically know that this guy's a mark, that they can play him like a fiddle. Uh, for their own purposes. And it's in part because, you know, any of these countries can come into Washington for a day or two, and they're going to have a great meeting with President Trump, by and large, because they tell him what he wants to hear. He tells them what they want to hear, but it doesn't add up to actually ending conflicts and stabilizing the region. It's all sort of this uh, incoherent game that my my point on the Iran bit is I don't I hope we, I, I think Rose is largely right um, that that we're not likely to see a, a major conflict here but I could see a flare up happening that gets U.S. soldiers in the middle of the crosshairs of something that's quite ugly uh, in Syria or, or or in Iraq and and that could flare up pretty pretty badly but the bigger point is that you know on Yemen absolutely we've got a bipartisan. Uh, deep concern and opposition to uh, America's passive approach there, and, and and we should get more engaged in trying to end that conflict. We only have six minutes left in this podcast, and so I uh, just want to go to a couple of briefer responses. Evelyn, you mentioned a moment ago North Korea, um, and of course, again, in the past week, what we've seen is North Koreans testing short-range missiles, North Korea testing some longer-range missiles, and the president of the United States um, saying, well, you know, I get along with Kim, and he really understands me, and, you know, he really, you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't make a mistake, um, you know, to, that might jeopardize the relationship, and completely overlooking the ratcheting up of, of tension, the kind of in-your-face, I'm going to go back to doing what I was doing, um, measures that that Kim seems to be putting in place, that 
you know, is it has Kim calculated that Trump is so committed to pretending that peace has broken out that he can do anything he wants? I think Kim Kim is frustrated because he wants some kind of deal from Trump. He knows the clock is ticking on how long. I mean, you know, we'll see whether President can, President Trump gets reelected. But, you know, Kim has said, I gave the president, you know, I gave America till the end of the year. So he he set Kim set some kind of imaginary clock on us. Um, but the reality is uh, time is on his side, actually. It's not on our side. And, you know, all as this time goes by, he continues to test. He continues to build his arsenal. He's doing this. Uh, I, I should add the other part that's alarming to me is not just what that the president, you know, blew this off, sort of dismissed this, but that even Secretary Pompeo said, well, it didn't cross the missile didn't cross international uh, boundary lines. I mean, as if that 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 matters. I mean, it, it's still a provocation and it's a deliberate provocation. Uh, excuse me. In order what, to what get you, us to the negotiating table. What do you mean by this? Even Secretary Pompeo? I mean, Pompeo well, what I mean by is, that a, is, is a hand cabinet, puppet. He's a hand puppet know, for the president. I I'm, know, but sometimes they say, the cabinet members say the, what we would consider the right and normal thing. They acknowledge reality. <laughs> and in this case, he uh, bent over backwards not to acknowledge reality, to kind of line up with the president on this. I know. I'm. I'm in any event, um, my so that's another cause for alarm. But Basically, this also happened right after Kim met with the Russian president, with Vladimir Putin. So clearly he tested the waters there. And Putin said, oh, yes, we ought to lift sanctions on North Korea in exchange for some good efforts or good faith efforts by the by the North Koreans. You know, I don't know which efforts Putin would be referring to. But nonetheless, Putin was clearly, um, um, you know, putting the weight on the scale on the side of Kim Jong-un, you know, signaling to the United States that we ought to deal with North Korea and we ought to be more, we, the United States, ought to be more conciliatory. So, it, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a joke because this is not a tenable situation. At some point, the North Koreans are going to increase their, their provocations. And, you know, when they launch longer range missiles, then they fall, they, then they cross Japanese territory, they, you know, they fall into international waters, etc. And, and if Kim wants the lifting of the sanctions and an economic land uh, uh, lifeline, which is what he wants, he has to get it from the United States. And so this is what he's, he's just pushing for more, putting more pressure on in order to force us to come to the negotiating table again. When he's looking for economic lifelines, of course, one thing he might do is look north because Mike Pompeo, that great secretary of state, has pointed out in recent talks on the Arctic that steady reductions in sea ice are opening new passageways and new opportunities for trade. In other words, that great secretary of state of ours has come out in favor of climate change, um, which, you know, he's... He's in a special place, Mr. Um, uh, Ra Secretary of the Rapture. Um, um, uh, and, and you know, someday we'll have to devote a whole episode to this. Rosa, um, you know, going back to the, the, the points in, in Brian's uh, uh, or the Center for American Progress's study, uh, as we look forward to the 2020 election, you know, every single area that Donald Trump has initiated in terms of international relations seems to me to be turning up to be a 
giant mess, you know, whether it's pulling out of TPP, pulling out of the Paris Accords, uh, renegotiating uh, a deal on NAFTA, which probably won't pass uh, the Congress because it lacks uh, uh, enforcement mechanisms and even then was not a particularly substantial gain. Uh, trade trade talks um, having bad effect on farmers and on the steel industry, um, the uh, the aluminum industry, uh, uh, er, er, the erratic nature of the talks with China, which we've seen in just uh, the past day with new threats and counter threats. Uh, of course, uh, pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal seems to have made the situation worse. Uh, the, the Venezuela rescue that I think they thought they were going to have last week doesn't seem to be going so well. Uh, needless to say, uh, the relations with Europe are a mess. Um, uh, and uh, although he does have good relations with Putin, uh, that, that, that has a bit of a cloud over it for, for reasons we'll get to in our next episode. Um, but as Trump runs... You know, what do you think his strategy is on foreign policy in 2020? Is it just to lie? Sure. Why not? That's what he has done so far. Why would he change now? You know, I think from his perspective, lying has been working pretty well. He's not he's not in jail yet, as we as we noted previously. So, yeah, I mean, he's lied his whole life. I don't anticipate that that's going to change. He will simply continue to say, you know, it's great. You know, the Chinese are are running from me in terror. We're winning. The North Koreans love me. We're winning. The Iranians are scared of me. We're winning, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and on the plus side, of course, uh, the New York Times was reporting today on this big new UN report on the likely extinction of millions of new species. And I'm sure Trump will argue that uh, it'll mostly consist of the extinction of cockroaches and annoying little yappy dogs or something. And this is all something we should cheer about. Um, so everything in Trump world is going to be, you know, the world was taking advantage of us and uh, I'm kicking butt. Uh, and his base will will cheer and salivate and everybody else will continue to roll their eyes. Um, so I you know, I don't think we should expect any any changes either in the foreign policy arena or anywhere else from from Donald Trump. Uh, and indeed, I think one thing uh, perhaps to praise him for is is his complete consistency. Um, uh, you never have to worry that Donald Trump is suddenly going to transform himself into a totally different kind of person. He doesn't have the capacity to do that. And he, he you know, so once a liar, always a liar. Um, the only question I think is, is going to be whether those running against him are, are able to, uh, you know, get any traction um, with with the group of people who are persuadable, which is still substantial. Yeah, well, that would require getting Democrat who was not compromised by their past record. But we'll we'll you can discuss that at another time as well. Um, uh, that's it for us because we try to keep this to forty five minutes. I want to say thank you to Brian for coming on. I hope you'll come back on again, and 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 I encourage everybody to go and uh, to Center for American Progress's website. Look at the. The study, it's a, it's a very good one. Um, I want to say uh, thank you to Evelyn for hiding under a couch in the Senate. Um, um, and stay there, because we still have another podcast to go here uh, that we're taping. And I want to say thank you to Rosa. I'm in, for, I'm in. I haven't for, been kicked out yet. Good. And I want to say thank you to Rosa for raising the possibility of the extinction of small yappy dogs, which 
uh, honestly, is something most of us, I think, any sane person would be in favor of. Um, in any event. Oh, my uh, God. You're going to get hate tweets. On a that. lot of hate Ooh. tweets from <laughs> Chihuahua owners everywhere. Um, uh, but um, I, I just have to be honest as a large dog owner. Um, and, and by the way, I mean, the dog is large. I am not a large owner of a dog. Um but uh, we, we, you know, just had to speak to my own neuroses there. In any event, thank you very much, guys. Thank you, everybody out there for listening. And if you want to hear more stuff like this, go to the DSRnetwork.com where you'll hear all of our podcasts. You'll get to see some new content. I encourage you to go listen to the unredacted uh, from DSR podcast, which debuted uh, this week with a show hosted by Molly Junkfest, Philippe Rhinus, uh, Emily Brandwin, and had on it Rick Wilson, uh, uh, author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, who is a, a smart and funny guy, despite being also a Republican. Um, and um, and we got a lot of good stuff like that. So go to the DSRnetwork.com. And while you're there, why don't you go to the membership part and click on membership and become a member and give us a little bit of money and then we can do more of this kind of stuff because we're not a big giant media company um, and uh, it helps us to buy, you know, uh, the kind of Diet Cokes and bottled water that Ian requires to uh, edit these podcasts together. Uh, thank you very much, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, Brian. Thank you. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you. <laughs>